This is Kevin Lavelle, and you're listening to Founders 15. You know what the world needs? Another business podcast. Well, actually, maybe it does. See, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, many of which were truly great. I learned a lot and had takeaways that changed my business or personal life. But I often noticed there was no commonality between the interviews as they were wide-ranging, so it was harder to tease out themes between them. I launched Mizzen in Maine to bring advanced performance fabrics to traditional menswear. So just like deciding the world needed a better dress shirt when everyone said it was crazy, I decided to launch Founders 15. Founders 15 is a unique new discussion experience, distinct in three specific ways. The conversations will be founder to founder, eliciting an enlightening back and forth of two people with an overlap rarely found in other interviews. In my position as founder of Mizzen and Maine, I've gotten to have extraordinary conversations with other founders, and I know that there are takeaways that a lot of people would benefit from. So episodes will also feature the same 15 main questions in each podcast, helping bring a continuity to these discussions with appropriate probing on key themes as they develop throughout the interview. Perhaps most distinctively, I'm focused primarily on founders building something right now, and not just the billion-dollar unicorns that get the headlines every day. These interviews feature real people building real businesses today. Business titans from years ago offer much to learn from, but my focus is on those in the heart of their journey to build something great. To keep things particularly interesting, I'll also be interviewing a few well-known athletes and coaches, founders in their own right, to gain additional insight and inspiration as to what it takes to achieve greatness. Would love to hear any feedback anytime. I'm on Twitter at Kevin S. Lavelle, and I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I've enjoyed having them. For the first episode of Founders 15, we have a guest who is not only a great business leader, but a friend. I've been fortunate to spend a fair bit of time with Simon, including most recently a week around Asia. I love every minute of time I get to spend with him. And after listening to this podcast, I think you'll know why. He is the embodiment of a humble leader and is the co-founder of Sweaty Betty with his wife and creative visionary, Tamara. He's changed how the UK looks at not only active apparel, but fitness itself. After seeing a very unique market opportunity 20 years ago, the same time Lululemon launched, they started selling active apparel for women. After many years, they realized they needed to launch their own brand, and Sweaty Betty as we know it today was born. From his Friday breakfasts with the boss to how they continue to evolve as a 20-year-old business, I think you'll have several genuine takeaways and be inspired to be a better leader, spouse, and parent. I know I was. Without further ado, the first episode of Founders 15 starts now. Simon, thanks for joining us today. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. It's been great to get to know you over the last couple of years and uh, really eager to have this conversation today. Kevin, thank you so much for inviting me. Look forward to it. So let's just start with a little bit of context. Tell us um, in a few words about your business so people can understand where you guys are today and a little bit about kind of who you are as a person and your family. So I'm CEO of Sweaty Betty. Uh, This is a business I started with my wife, who is the talent in this organization. um, And I consider myself as the management. Uh, We have uh, 62 stores in the UK and the US. Uh, That's now the wrong measure because uh, we're falling out of love with retail. Um, 50% of our business is online. And we design and make the most beautiful women's activewear in the world. That's our mission. Personally, uh, I'm married to my business partner, Tamara. We have three kids, who, two of whom are teenagers, uh, and they're a constant inspiration and grounding for us. Um, and we all work full-time on this. This is uh, deeply personal and incredibly important to us, uh, both as a couple and as a family. The kids have featured in some of our campaigns when we've done teen leggings um, and recognize that both their mom and their dad, uh, you know, work hard to give them everything that we can give them. It's wonderful. And uh, my wife and I worked together for a number of years at Mizzen in Maine. And uh, I think I I recall uh, a, a... at our breakfast or dinner that we had with El Catterton, one of the rules that they had described was 
never invest in a company run by a husband and wife and both of our companies <laughs> are run by husbands and wives. Um, so knowing that you guys have a unique story being business partners, um, tell us a little bit about your, your launch story specifically around the timing and trigger points. When, when was the idea, when was your first prototype and what happened to make you say it's time to start this company? So the launch story is that we were both, uh, both wanted to run our own business, but for different reasons. Um, I think in my case, I was, I, I love building things, whether it's, you know, with my hands at home at the weekend um, and during my studies and university time, I was always running little businesses, whether it was making t-shirts or taking 50 people skiing. So I made some money out of it. Um, in, in, in Tamara's case, she claims that she's unemployable and just had to be the boss. And that was the only way it was ever going to work for her. That's great. Um, and she, but, but she, she, she just loves products. She's a sort of fashionista. And so anything that could have worked in that, that, that area w was great for her. And what happened was she was working, I was working in finance for four years after university. She was working uh, in a husband and wife run business called Knickerbox. In the UK, we had these single product businesses, tie rack, knicker box, sock shop, which literally sold ties, underwear, and socks. And this husband and wife were running knicker box. And they had asked her to look into some sort of gym clothing line that they wanted to launch. And she met a fantastic brand in the UK who had great product. And the guy who owned it said, in fact, he was called Kevin as well, Kevin. He said, hey, Tamara, the problem is there's nowhere I can sell this product. And this was the moment for us. This was the moment that we thought, hold on a sec, this is beautiful product. We were pretty sure that more and more people were going to be, you know, working out in the future, although this was very early days, 20 years ago. Uh, but that was the light bulb moment where we said, hold on, there's a gap in the market. No one is serving this customer. And how about if we started a business selling activewear to women? Um, and there, were, uh, there are a whole load of things that are wrong with that statement and didn't make sense at the time. First of all, the sports industry did not really serve women. I think they would admit it. They talked about the women's department as the shrink it and pink it department. So they would make smaller garments and put pink on it, and they thought that was sufficient. So the idea of this new category that we were trying to invent in the UK, at the same time that Lulu were inventing it in North America so successfully, uh, was very new, very innovative, and very exciting for us. So that was the beginning. We, we, Tamara identified a gap in the market. We did, you know, we, we, we did a questionnaire for 100. Yeah, so we asked uh, 100 friends. We did a questionnaire with 100 people and, and asked them where they buy their gym clothes and whether they were members of gyms. And they were increasingly members of health clubs or gyms. But they had no answer to where they buy their clothes. They they would buy their clothes when they flew to New York, and and we thought this is this is not sustainable. That there's an opportunity here, and that was the, that was that was the beginning. Um, you asked about prototypes. As a matter of fact, we took a slightly easier route. Uh, we we filled our shop initially with um, third party brands. So we had Nike and Adidas, uh, but the things that sold really well were really were brands, European brands normally, that Tamara had found uh, by, you know, by looking hard. And they just had very, very beautiful fabrics and very beautiful cut and styling. And so our initial customers were looking beyond the brand name and, and really into the quality of the garment and its performance and the fabrics. And, and, and that was the beginning of Sweaty Betty. And so when did you make your first sweaty betty um your own brand name garment yeah well that that was a pivot that was a massive pivot for our business so we started with a shop in notting hill it was uh it was when notting hill the movie came out notting hill was a super cool edgy part of london rich and poor living side by side um and we filled the store with these other brands it took really eight or nine years of opening stores by now, let's say we had 20 stores across the UK um, and we just couldn't make money. It was, it was really genuinely, I think it may actually be technically impossible to make money selling other people's 
brands in small stores. These are thousand square foot stores. They're, they've got relatively high sales density, but in total, they're low turnover stores. They're seven fifty thousand dollars a year turnover stores, and the margin isn't there on third party brands. Uh, and so when we started making our first sweaty Betty garments was after I met with a private equity guy and he said, Hey, I love your business. I love all the numbers. The there's one number that has a problem though. And I said, what's that? And he said, your gross margin, your gross margin is 10 to 20 points below where it should be, uh, which is, you know, the profit on the product because we were paying the brands so much for the product. We just weren't making the money we needed to. Uh, we were proudly ending the year at 52%. And he opened my eyes to the fact that, uh, you know, the fashion brands are in the high 60s and low 70s at the end of the year. So that was the big breakthrough. It was a pivot for the business. Our, you know, our purpose never changed. We wanted to dress this uh, affluent, well-educated woman in the best activewear in the world, but we pivoted from selling other people's brands to Sweaty Betty brand, and that was, you know, that was the next chapter for us. After after you know eight years, we moved into this um, own brand uh, vertical, uh, you know, business definition, which was absolutely essential, critical to our success, uh, and really the mo the most important pivot we've made so far. Yeah. So that's a pretty significant change for not only you and your wife, but the, the company overall. So talk to me about defining your culture. How do you define and defend it daily? And you don't have to necessarily talk about the full pivot of culture that happened when you changed how you operate, but, um, what would the lessons, most important lessons be around defining your culture? So we're Kevin, we're very purposeful as I know you are in, um, defining culture, defining our purpose, overall purpose, and defining our mission. And a mission for us is more a sort of five-year, big, hairy, audacious goal. Culture, right from the beginning, has been about empowering women. In, 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 in fact, our purpose, the purpose for, for the business from the beginning, although I have to say we weren't you know, we had much cleverer and smarter people join us later on that helped put it in words. But from the beginning, we've said Sweaty Betty exists to empower women through fitness and beyond. So, so much of what we do is about empowering women. And, 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 and I, as a man, have to stand back from a huge amount of decisions, which is, uh, you know, suits me fine, actually. Um, but I have to uh, stand back from a, a lot of the decisions because it has to be by women for women. Um, so culturally, uh, we have been on a, a tremendous journey with culture, um, but really it is about, you know, if, if we can spend more time and effort recruiting the right people, we have a very, very active and successful refer a friend program. We would always recruit a friend over someone we don't know. We would always promote internally over external wherever possible but when you're growing at 30 40 percent a year that you know people quite often can't keep up yeah that's difficult um yeah and and the sec so, so that's number one a massive focus on the people that we bring into the business secondly it's you know like you working with your wife it it we we make everything personal it feels like a family business i meet every single person. So we have 700, and I just happened to know this today, we have 753 people working with us today. Um, I have met every single person that joins our business. We have an induction day. I attend it without fail. And if I can't make it, I join it by Skype. But beyond that, we, we, we used to have, so we, we try to keep it as personal as possible. For example, every Friday, we have a thing called breakfast with the boss where I go to a store or I meet a team out of their normal working environment and I have breakfast with them. And that's when we talk about boyfriends and girlfriends and what's going on in their life, but also what turns them on about the brand and what, why they joined, what excites them. And as long as Tamara and I can stay in touch with that, that feeling of positivity, one of the, I asked them five questions. One of the questions I asked is 
what do you love about Sweaty Betty? So I don't even let them say whether they love it. They love the brand or not. <laughs> I sort of, I, I put it in their mind that they love it. And it's extraordinary. If you just ask that question and listen, which is what I do on a weekly basis, you get this very coherent and clear stream of consciousness coming back at you. And those are the things that we try and reinforce. And they are largely around treating it like a you know family business, giving people extraordinary opportunities way beyond where they would expect the, the sort of responsibility they would get and what they think of as a regular business and always listening. They love the fact that, you know, without fail, someone in every group will say, it's so amazing. Like everybody wants to know what I think and how I feel. And, and so those are just some sort of simple ways that we think about culture and, and, and try and build it actually more than defend it, just build it up. It's wonderful. Thanks. I, I was taking some notes there. Um, so you talked about those first few years and how difficult it was to, to really kind of make any money. And then the pivot that happened, uh, kind of a hallmark of a lot of founders is making next to nothing or nothing for the first few months, first few years. How long was it until you felt like, okay, now I'm actually making the equivalent of a normal salary for someone at my level? Yeah, so I'm pretty embarrassed to answer this question because um, I, I've never considered that we've got there yet. You know, one, one day it'll be a successful business and we will um, relax. Um, the, I can't answer your question about the equivalent salary for someone at my level. I was working at Bain & Company. If I had stayed there for the last 20 years, you know, I would be working, I would be earning extraordinary amounts of money and I, I don't earn that at Sweaty Betty. I don't earn that intentionally because I like the idea that my salary is not disconnected from the rest of the business. I think of the shares that I own in the business as my real gain. Mm -hmm. um, but the answer to your actual question is I joke that our first, the first 10 stores that we opened were all in London and they were all within cycling distance of our house. And, and while that is a, that that's kind of sounds comical, it is actually true. We we did not have the money to service our car or indeed even dream of sending our children to private school, which is quite a sort of uh, a well-trodden path in the UK um, for the first, well, really until I met, I had this pivotal meeting with the private equity guy who said, you know, your gross margin sucks. You've got to, you've got to sort that out. Everything else is great. So honestly, quite honestly, for 10 years, we were at break even every year, and it felt like pushing water uphill. Part of the challenge was that the market wasn't ready for us. We were actually 10 years ahead of the curve. So um, even five years ago, there were only three yoga studios in the whole of London. Um, and so we were trying to sell activewear, and more importantly, trying to sell a lifestyle, an active lifestyle that we both enjoyed but really the rest of the population didn't understand or appreciate. Um, so to answer your question, I would say eight to 10 years before the business itself could afford to pay us yeah. uh, reasonable, salaries, reasonable now, salaries. Do you think that that yoga number is because Americans need yoga to start relaxing and you guys have your afternoon tea? Is that why it took so long for yoga? <laughs> I, think, I think it is. So I That's think it's about Earl Grey tea. Earl Grey tea and clotted cream and uh, scones. So we, I love your joke because we've always had, as, as part of our company beliefs, you know, we, we, we list them out. I said we're very purposeful about sort of company beliefs and culture and stuff. And, and, and one of them is, uh, one of them has been, uh, we love uh, tea and clotted cream, which no one understands, but it's, you know, it's just like, let's not take life too seriously. Absolutely. I love it. So, um, you guys have built something truly extraordinary. Um, and it's obviously taken you guys a long time. It takes a long time to sit in it and know that eventually you will make it who along the way. And I'm going to add a caveat. It can't be your wife because I know that would be your answer other than your <laughs> wife who has most inspired you. And it, it could be a, a famous entrepreneur or it could be a friend or it could be a family member other than your wife. Um, so I, 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 I'm really bad at having heroes and I don't follow people. And I always feel almost guilty about that because um, it's such a good question. And, 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 and my guilt was only slightly diminished 
This month, I went to a retail dinner and the previous head of MI6, which is our um, foreign secret intelligence service, uh, was was talking and somebody asked her, who are your heroes? And she said, you know, I just, I just don't have heroes. I look at people that I admire and I say to myself, I wonder if I could be as good as them or is there something I can take from them that would be helpful for me? And uh, But it, it, if... I was forced to make a choice. I would look back at my parents, who um, I probably have never told this, but my dad was incredibly um, professional, devoted uh, military officer and, and, and worked his way up to the top of the Royal Navy. So he, has this, he had this drive to succeed and be the best in a sort of corporate military environment. And my mum... Just ran little businesses. At the, you know, not just she ran little businesses because he was away for huge amounts of time. So she taught me. Uh, we were a very self-sufficient family because we d- did not get paid very much, even relatively to the population. Um, and so we were always growing our own things, building our own stuff. She pretty much built our house, and then she was always starting businesses. You know, a little you know children's clothes business. So. I, I would go back, you know, deep down, fundamentally, my character was formed by my parents, which is probably the truth of all of us. Um, and my dad was the drive and my mum was the creative energy uh, to build businesses and make, make, make grow things from nothing, which is what excites me the most. I love hearing that. That's truly wonderful. So the next question I think a lot about and I struggle with every day how do you stay sane? What is it that you do um, to stay <laughs> grounded? And, and as you said, you're meeting so many people all the time. You have 750 people that are looking to you for your leadership with your wife. What is it that you do each and every day? Do you do it every weekend? Um, what are those things that you do to stay sane? So probably this is the answer you, you, you banned me from using before, but w- my wife and I are completely different characters. So if I'm the Bain consultant that, you know, wants to emulate his dad and get to the top of the tree, she literally lives for today. Like, what are we doing today that's fun? What would be great fun to do tomorrow? And, uh, you know, I'm sweating away because I can't afford to pay salaries or whatever it is in the history of the business. And she goes, oh, just stop worrying about those things. We're <laughs> going to go paddleboarding tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, God, please, could you just share some of my anxiety and my pain? And she's like, no, no, come on, life's too short. Let's just have a, have a, have a great time. So the, the, the 100% answer to the question is being married to somebody who doesn't allow me to take myself or doesn't allow me to take the business too seriously and just insists that every day has a dose of something fun or special in it. And of course, children are just a ridiculously huge part of that equation. Um, but that's my answer. Uh, I, I do do, you know, there are, there, are, there are things that happen during my week that are very consistent that mm-hmm. give me um, freedom and, and release. But really having it deep down as, as part of the DNA of our family unit is uh, incredibly helpful. And my goodness, if she had been to business school and had worked at McKinsey or Bain, I think, you know, we would both be quivering wrecks because um, <laughs> it's just too tough, isn't it? You, you yeah. know, you, you, you've got to get out of it yeah. uh, as often as possible. Game changer for me last year, someone introduced me to um, Ryan Holiday and, and some of his writings and um, they oh, gave yeah. me a memento mori coin. Um, it's remember or keep in mind you could leave life tomorrow or leave life today. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a coin that you carry with you every day as a reminder that don't take anything too seriously and focus on the things that matter most because it could all be gone in, in an instant. So it, it's physically in your pocket at all times, is it? Yeah, I carried it with me Isn't 365 days of 2017 and it, it absolutely changed my perspective. And I don't carry it with me every day anymore. Um, there were times where it fell out and it really stressed me out yeah. trying to find it. And it was like, okay, <laughs> you're, you're missing the point here. Um, but uh, I, I really... Like, like, when, like when you and I went surfing, right? Yes, yes. I, I don't remember <laughs> where I left it, but I know there was some level of anxiety about losing it. Um, that's lovely. I love that. So speaking about surfing, um, if everything would be a hundred percent fine while you were gone and, uh, you had somebody uh, that could handle all the nuts and bolts and, and somebody that could work through all of the, um, creative and brand aspects that your wife does so beautifully, 
while you're gone, what would you do for mm. a month? And let's for, for now say that, um, school and kids activities aren't, aren't a challenge. You're able to just yeah go away and do something. What is that? Yeah. I, I mean, we, we both have, have always had a plan to have a year away, which we haven't achieved yet, but it's still a, you know, a working plan. I would love a month. I have a different answer for a month, but for a year, I would absolutely love to live in another country and I would, um, I would like to teach at a, I'd like to teach entrepreneurship at a business school. I went to a business school in France called INSEAD. Um, and that would massively appeal to me to sort of, to, 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 to be the, the, the few things that I've learned to be able to express those, to have the time to incorporate them into a coherent sort of body of, thinking and writing and then to be able to teach that would would really excite me for a month i have a deal with my brother-in-law that we are going to go and live in the french alps and we're both going to train as mountain guides um this is never going to happen because it takes about <laughs> five years to become a qualified Al uh, alpine mountain guide but we we both were pretty are pretty good skiers and we just love the idea of that self-indulgence of just skiing every day and, and and learning as well would be great fun it sounds it sounds amazing um so we've talked a little bit about the the long initial struggle of getting things off the ground and and really kind of scraping by but could you put a finger on what you feel like the biggest sacrifice was in starting your own business and i think you and i both agree and and most mm -hmm. entrepreneurs do that the sacrifice pales in comparison to the reward of getting to build a business and, and lead a team mm. and work with amazing people and all of those things. However, there are sacrifices and, and some pretty significant ones. What would you say would be your biggest sacrifice? Um, I find the question hard to answer. I, I, I love risk. And so I, I, I really thrive on the highs and the lows. And, and in my spare time, I choose to do sports that scare me um and so you know certainly the sacrifice was not losing the stability of a regular job you know i couldn't wait to get out of finance um and to go on this adventure um the biggest i mean the biggest sacrifice is, is purely money there was just no money and and the reason and and that's the reason it's not scary for me and my wife uh, which it should be. First of all, we came from very stable family backgrounds. Not not financially. We don't. We don't. Maybe it's because we never had any money. You know, we didn't. We had nothing to lose, and I think that's a really important point. So, the sacrifice was the salary we had sort of disappeared. Um, but like I said, my wife is like, well, how about we just go down to the coast on a train and play in the sea? It doesn't matter. Um, I, yeah. So. No, nothing, you know, it, it, it takes time and effort and focus. We're pretty selfish people anyway. So friends got, you know, pushed aside, certainly. But none of it felt like it was, well, like you said, it's all, it, it, it all feels worthwhile, even in, in the depths of when it's not working. It still felt like a tremendous adventure, sort of a huge excitement. Um, and that's what I choose every day uh, over sort of regular routine. Not a very satisfactory answer to the sacrifice piece, but, uh, you know, I, yeah, no, it's, it's all, it feels it's, good. it's a different, it's a different perspective, um, and, and a very healthy one. And I think as you mentioned earlier, Tamara's ability to keep you sane and grounded and remind you what really matters is, is one of life's greatest blessings that, that you have. So, um, let's talk about you, you mentioned earlier, the pivot from mm. other brands to sweaty Betty own brand. That's a huge change for your business, but would you say that or something that's happened since then was the, call it tipping point, and it may not have exploded your business 10x overnight as some do, but was there something that happened after you launched your own branded products that really changed the game for who you were as a company? And, and if so, how did you make that happen? And have you tried to do it again? We, uh, the, the move to own brand was absolutely fundamental. It happened t t pretty much when the global economic crisis or slowdown 
happened. Um, so it was a it was a big risk because it cost money. And I went to the investors and said, "Hey guys, we got two choices here. We either batten down the hatches, reduce costs, and keep our head down until the economy uh, turns around, or we follow the dream of building this own brand business." Um, and they happily voted for the second option, which which meant we had to raise more money. Um, the, so the own brand was a tipping point in its own right, because uh, by now the web was becoming very dominant. And if we had been selling Nike and Adidas stuff, we would have just got killed by the multi-brand uh, web players. Um, in terms of growth, Boringly, we have just consistently grown at between 20 and 30% every year. Um, so the tipping point on the top line, uh, there was no tipping point. We just consistently grown solidly and uh, securely. The, 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 the movement to own brand moved us from 55, uh, 52% gross margin and added more than 15 points. So even when we were, let's say, 10 or 20 million pound turnover, 15 points on 20 million, that's 3 million pounds just comes straight through. And so the tipping point for us was this move to own brand, which tipped us into being a profitable business. And then you can start following your convictions. You've got your own money to spend. You don't have to go cap in hand to the investors the whole time. Um, and so that was the, the, the profitability tipping point was a really big deal for us. And it, and it changes the way you think about everyday uh, business. You start making much more long-term in, investment decisions. Um, in terms of top line, there was a – the thing that we enjoyed the most was, uh, interestingly enough for us, it sounds very old-fashioned now, but catalog. So we got into strategic customer acquisition through catalog, mostly in the UK and then and then in the US. So I was mailing 2 million catalogs a year in the US and 3 million in the UK. And that was very, very exciting. It fueled uh, really significant growth. But more importantly, it taught us as a business and me personally what customer, you know, all about customer acquisition, the metrics, how you think about it. Um, and that was exciting for us and is, and is more relevant today than it ever was as we have so many ways of spending our money um, digitally. Uh, and, the, and, and what I love is that my business is well-versed in the, in the language and the discipline and the metrics of customer acquisition, which is now s so important as we, um, as we allocate our spend. Jumping into catalogs is a mm. pretty significant jump and not something that you can do all that lightly, but I imagine you did a couple tests. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you decided to go from, we're going to test this to, I'm so confident that we're going to scale to 5 million catalogs a year? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I have done from the beginning is we've been very good at collecting customer data as a retailer. That's quite unusual back in the day. Uh, online, you get a lot of customer data, obviously, because you have to deliver the product directly to the customer. So we, we had a good customer database uh, of existing customers. And exactly as you said, we tested it. We didn't have a single Mac in our business. I remember when we had to buy our first Mac for a graphic designer. So we outsourced everything. We had a catalog design agency design it. We had a, you know, some other agency buy the names for us. And we did the whole thing on a shoestring. Um, and that, uh, and we did two things. One was a catalog to acquire customers. And the other was a catalog to existing customers. Both of them performed way above sort of our expectations and industry metrics. And so incrementally uh, over that first year, we would, we would increase the circulations from 50,000. The first circulation was 50,000. Then it went to 150. Then it went to uh, 250. And in fact, in, we never went above 250 for any single mailing because, well, we did. And I learned not to because it didn't work. So it's very much trial and, yeah, it's, it's trial and error, the whole thing. Yep. But it was really bootstrapped to start with. Spend no money on it. Allocate 50,000 pounds. See what we can do. Um, and so everything was outsourced and then, and then it worked, you know, very, very well. Uh, and we had at least five to eight years of very strong growth through, through catalog. 
So one more kind of growth question um, on this. You mentioned at the beginning um, kind of falling out of love of retail and obviously with the way that digital is growing and how you guys are able to um, spread your message across so many different customer acquisition channels. What are you thinking of in terms of how you're changing your retail approach? Um, a very hot topic. Uh, we're incredibly proud. I'm very proud of our locations. So what we've done with the locations, and, I, and the reason I start with this, is that I think that where I have my stores will, will transcend, will, will survive the retail meltdown. So my stores, almost without exception, apart from some of the U.S. stores, are in what I would call a local neighborhood. So the store is next to the local organic butcher, the local organic greengrocer, the dry cleaner, the, um, you know, the beautiful coffee shops. Um, and so I think that the customer, my customer, during all this economic turmoil and political upheaval, she has learned not to trust the banks, not to trust the politicians, really not to trust the institutions, both in North America and in the UK. And she has, you know, I think we're returning to community. Yeah. We're, we're returning back to family and community. And so the fact that all of our stores are in those little local communities is something that I love. I find that a very romantic type of retail. I'm a, a little bit allergic to malls, which are just too sort of overtly commercial for me. Um, so I think that I think the locations will survive. But what we're actually doing to answer your question is, um, you know, people do want human interaction. And from the beginning of our business, we have run um, free yoga classes, free Pilates classes, free HIIT classes in our stores every day. In fact, we run 100 classes a week for free. And so we're giving 1,000 people a week access to free fitness. And many of those people are just beginning on a journey to a sort of healthy lifestyle Many of them have perhaps had children and are wanting to get back into shape. Um, and that's the sort of beginning, the genesis of how we think about our stores. We, we call them local wellness hubs. So you can go into any of our stores and just say, hey, I'm, I'd like to take up yoga. Can you recommend a studio? Uh, and, you know, our, what sh the answer should be, yes. I was just talking with Katya. She's the founder of this studio over there that we all love and by the way she's teaching on thursday night so why don't you come in on thursday and give it a try so we're using you know this we've always done this in our stores but it's going to be much more of our focus going forward we're trying to create a little bit more space in the stores for those sorts of conversations and sitting down and and, and talking about um wellness and uh, the sort of local community initiatives and so when you say falling out of love of retail, it's the things that are happening across the retail landscape. A lot of those you see in a negative light, the way that you guys are executing what you're doing, you feel is how it should be done for sweaty Betty. I do. I mean, I, I was referring to the sort of the industry falling out of love with retail okay. uh, deep down in my heart. I'm a retailer, which is a constraint in the, in today's world. Um, I, I, I haven't fallen out of love with it. Having said that, Kevin, I do not see it, it, it is playing a different role. And, and, you know, maybe this is too frank, but in, in our business, it has been the profit engine of our business as we've invested to get <clears throat> the digital side up to 50% of revenue. I don't see, I, I, I do not plan that retail in five years time will be the profit engine of our business. I think it yeah. will start to play a different, more, community-oriented role. Um, it'll introduce people to the brand. We know that they will then shop online. Right. And I think the challenge for all of us retailers is to reconcile how much value do we attribute to a store. I mean, I, I happen to be lucky enough that all our stores make money, but let's say in five years' time, 20 of them do not make money. Do I close them or do I stick with my belief that you know giving free classes and having community a community presence is important enough and, um, you know, it's hard to do the maths to, 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 to attribute back the lifetime value of a customer that was acquired through stores. It's, it, it, there, there'll be a time when it doesn't add up. 
yeah. and that that'll be and and that time is you know fast approaching for many of us for context is sweaty betty a particularly british term or is it just kind of a slang thing that you guys heard out and about so sweaty betty is a particularly british term uh it's a very derogatory comment that you would make about uh someone you could imagine that you might call a sweaty betty uh, but what we did like is um tamara read the archie comics um, back in her youth. So there's a, there's a, a Betty character there who's a pretty cool girl. And we love the fact that a Betty in sort of California is like a cool surfer girl. Um, so I think it, you know, it transcends the British. Yeah, but in, in the UK, it's definitely an insult. It's like a derogatory term. But you guys were able to own it in your own way. And that's really yeah, resonated we, we with it. your customers. Exactly. And flipped it. And, and what, what the women tell me is that hey, we get it. You men don't understand. You think that we don't sweat. You know, you think that we just perspire gently. Actually, <laughs> gently. we have to work really, really hard. Yeah. So, we, so we, we think of it as cause and effect, you know, sweaty and then Betty. So, you know, you've got to work out really hard to look like you want to look. Um, and, that's great. and that's what women tell us. They get, it, they get the irony and the, the juxtaposition. Such a great background. Um, so looking forward, where do you see uh, Sweaty Betty in 10 years? Well, I think, I mean, what's so fantastic is we spent these 20 years, you know, battling away to create this category called activewear in the UK. And now we're in the US. Uh, and of course, we have international websites. And the whole world about three years ago woke up to this idea that uh, you could, in the same way that you've innovated so profoundly with dress shirts uh, at Mizzen and Main, the whole world is has woken up to, well, why shouldn't my yoga clothes be so beautiful and so well designed that I can wear them to a board meeting or to the school run or, you know, whatever. So this, this category is just emerging as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we're incredibly well placed because we have some of the best manufacturers and some of the best designs in the world. Uh, and I think, you know, my ambition for the brand is that I would like to be the number one premium women's activewear brand in the world as this category, as this movement of living healthy lifestyles and wearing the lifestyle that you're living goes international or global. It's not just, you know, London, New York, LA. It's actually Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing, Sydney. I mean, the, the Australians have always been incredibly active, as you know. Um, so what I would love to be is the, 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 the premium offer. As Lulu, Lulu are doing an incredible, Lulu Lemon are doing an incredible job of growing internationally and um they are you know they're they're the they're the i don't know what the right reference point is but they're the um most well-known brand um they're the gap of the category let's say sort of incredibly well-known very solid reliable product i would like to be the more fashionable um more premium version that uh that so, so in essence, I need to take the brand up and I need to take the brand global. And that's what we're working on at the moment. That's great. And I, I don't know if you knew that you said this, but something that just came out, I think encapsulated it so well, it's where the lifestyle that you're living. And I think that is a, a perfect encapsulation. So looking ahead, uh, global domination, which I love to hear. But if you could go back to the beginning, and um, yeah. I think you, you'll see a trend where I, I don't let you answer some questions in the way that I know you will, um, other than <laughs> launching your own brand sooner, um, if yeah. that would be your answer, what what would you tell yourself, the one thing you'd tell yourself at the beginning, if you could go back and give um, just a piece of advice across time, what would that be? Yeah, for me, it would be we lost a lot of years and we lost a lot of years because I lost my nerve and we lost a lot of years because we didn't have the finance and the economics weren't working. So I think um, and 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 how could I have not lost those years? Honestly, if I had had an investor who had invested behind a multi-store lifestyle brand, um, we could have. We could have, we could have probably gained five years on our growth story. Mm -hmm. So it turns out what what I've discovered later, and I had to work it out myself by pulling the accounts. In the UK, everybody has to publish their accounts so you can have access to the P and Ls of most businesses. Um, it turns out that there is a minimum scale at which you will never make money running a multi, a small multi, a multi-store, small size business. 
and, and that magic number I had no idea about. The magic number happens to be 10 million of revenue because you just, you just cannot afford any central costs below 10 million because the stores sort of suck it all up in rent and staff costs. So I would go back and say to myself, hey, did you know you got to get to 10 million as fast as you can? So go and find the money, find the backers that believe in what you're doing and, and, and just, just get there. Don't worry too much about analyzing the performance of every single store. So we would lurch from a year where we opened five stores to a year where we opened no stores because we just, you know, we just lost our nerve or it wasn't working well enough. Um, so that would be that would be the that would be the bit I would I, I would change. Um, just maybe having someone on the journey who had done it all before and could just guide us and and, and prompt us and say, hey, don't lose your nerve. It's going to work. Yeah, keep going, but if anything, go a little bit faster. So knowing knowing that retrospective and also the delay in, in starting your own brand, since starting your own brand, what has been your single biggest regret if you could go back and change something since the launch of your own own branded products? What is the the one thing that stands out to you as a regret? Oh no, that's a terrible question. I can't. So I, I have this, I have this awful filter. Like whenever I get asked anything like that, what's the worst? You know, I, I have no idea. I mean, I, my brain just doesn't work like that. I, I don't even really understand what a regret is. But the, that, that can be an answer. Only, maybe that's my answer. The only thing I tell myself that I will only ever regret things that I don't do. And because I don't do them, I don't remember that I didn't do them. And I don't re regret that I did. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. I actually don't know. I don't, we don't have any regret. Business-wise, yeah. So my regret is that in the year, in the first couple of years, I did not have on board either an investor or a board member who'd done it all before and seen it all before. Yeah. And who could have makes just a huge sort of difference. Kept, us, kept, us, kept us straight. Yeah. So on a happier note, and uh, please yes. remain unfiltered, um, what brings <laughs> you joy every single day? Yeah, you, Kevin, unfiltered. You can tell that, that I didn't get, I didn't have PR or media training, unfortunately. <laughs> I hope I'm not being too frank. <laughs> I think I, I, I have a nasty, I'm already thinking, shit, I'm really going to regret this interview. Kevin sort of softened me up and he's asked me all these nice questions and I've told it exactly how I feel. And That's then he's going to publish it. I'm going, oh, crap. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, listen, I, I, I'd like to answer in a business context. Um, and, uh, it's, it's the answer to the question that I ask that everybody knew that joins the business or has recently joined the business and people who've been here for a long time is why do you love sweaty Betty? And for me, I get so much pride and, and I'm sure you do as well, that that stupid idea that you wrote down on the back of a, you know, a beer mat uh, uh, and me and my wife sort of scribbled it down. And then we were talking with some people on a holiday and one of them was a retailer and he said, Oh, listen, I'll give you 20,000 pounds to start that up. I, I love the fact that every day I love the fact that it, it, it happened and we persevered, but fundamentally the thing that, brings me the most joy is the people and the customers that we work with that that sounds sycophantic and and throwaway but not so let me just explain let me explain what i mean we're not in america in england that sounds sycophantic and okay. throwaway because <laughs> we're we're not such wonderfully positive people as you are we're much more cynical <laughs> but what 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 i mean is we genuinely tamara and i are very sort of straightforward people and we don't we, we, there's not much protocol around us or there never has been um and maybe that's a reaction to coming from military families which is all about protocol and dress codes and arriving at the right time and all this kind of stuff and and e every day what gives us the most pleasure is people that we recruit or women that come and shop with us who just say do you know what you have fundamentally changed my life and 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 sadly, we normally get those stories when they resign and go on to greater things, which we love and, and, and embrace. But when you get that letter from a customer or face to face and they say, do you know what? I came and I wasn't too sure who I was. And I was a little bit uncertain about what I was doing with my life. And this 
job or this the lifestyle you're promoting has really, really changed my life. And that, for us, you know, deep down, back in the day, the thing that linked Tamara and I is we wanted to make a difference. Um, and to have that validated so many years later, firsthand by people we work with and um, people that we serve as customers is kind of awesome. And so for me, that, that that's it. It, it. It's a non-family answer. I would have a different answer for family. But for business, that is, you know, that puts a spring in your step every morning. Couldn't agree more. I, I resonate very much with that and, and, uh, and love hearing it from, from friends building great things. So um, I'll butter you up with my answer first so you can, <laughs> you can feel better about yours. Um, my most recent embarrassing professional moment has actually been a series of embarrassing professional moments. Uh, we have a 9 a.m. Um, stand-up huddle where the whole team stands up and just talks about, hey, here's my priority for the day. Here's a challenge I'm facing and, and here's how I'm doing today. It, it just looking uh, people nice. around uh, in the circle, looking at each other in the eye builds a level of, of camaraderie and friendship and, really and humanizes nice. people. And, um, we've had so many people joining over the last six months. We've had some of our interns joining, we've had part-time, um, we've been hiring and I'm in and out of the office traveling a lot. And at least four times in the last six months, I've walked in and not known that there was a new person in our circle of 40 people. And, um, you'd think after doing it one or two times, I would ask someone to help me make sure that that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly, um, exactly. But somehow I think I won't. And then I do it again and again. So most recently <laughs> it's not knowing that there's a new person in the room and it's not as if we have hundreds yeah. of people, it's, it's around 40. Um, so that's mine. So now I'm going to ask you for your most embarrassing professional moment. Kevin, it's such a, it's such a tough question. And I, and I think, uh, I, I don't have an anecdote for you and I need some good anecdotes. And, and, and I think you're probably, you, you have more experience doing this kind of thing than I do. Um, the, embarrassing the, myself the, or the, answering these questions, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> answering good questions there you go. cleverly with good anecdotes. But, but in, in, in principle, you know, for me, everything, nothing, we didn't know anything of what we were doing. So I wonder if I'm just unembarrassable because I'm constantly, screwing things up and making the wrong judgments um and, and and but the beauty is i'm surrounded by women who seem to be incredibly non-judgmental much more intuitive than i am and so there's that there'll be one from this morning there'll be one from yesterday uh, i can't scale them uh, I, I i can't give you the most embarrassing of all but i would say what what has helped me is to recognize that I have no idea what I'm doing constantly out of my depth. Um, in America, I think you call it fake it till you make it, which for me is just like the whole point is to be out of your depth and know what you're doing. Otherwise life is too dull. So I, Absolutely. I, 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 I have a whole load of um, regular occurrences where I sort of go, oh, how embarrassing. Luckily I don't embarrass easily. So not a satisfactory answer, but um, that's how I think about that one. No, I think that's great. Um, so I think you covered this earlier as you think about global domination, but do you want to do this for your whole life or do you want to find a time to say, uh, we, we have accomplished all we set out to do and now I want to go be that professor? So, uh, um, the second, the latter, we, we definitely, I mean, we couldn't be happier. Tamara is in her happiest zone where she has a design team and she's surrounded by product and she's trying to perfect it and make it better and surprise the customer with new things. Um, I, I say the way I express this is I, is I say, I don't want this on my tombstone. I don't know if that resonates in the States, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I would like to do several of these in my time and not necessarily business. So exactly as you said, I'd love to teach at business school. Um, and I'm very, very passionate about the environment as a surfer and a skier. I spend a lot of time in um, in nature and not enough ever. And yeah. uh, and that's become topical now. And I would love to spend some of my energies uh, in that area as well. So you have literally just the perfect segue any interviewer could ever ask for when you talk about your tombstone. Um, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I would like to be remembered as somebody that people went to for advice or for coaching. And that's my kids. I love the way my wife has created an extraordinary relationship with our children where they're 
constantly asking for our input rather than rejecting us and pushing us away, which is remarkable, bearing in mind two of them are teenagers. Um, I love the idea that people would want to ask my opinion um, and, uh, and, 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 and see whether I can help them with my experience and thoughts about the world. So to be somebody that um, is respected and whose advice is sought, as simple as that. Beautiful. Well, we've got a couple minutes left and I'm going to go through some rapid fire questions and the most important Ooh. two items here. Uh, <laughs> we'll take inspiration from tomorrow and let's not take ourselves too seriously. There are some pretty ridiculous questions in here. And two, just fire off whatever comes to mind. There's no wrong answer um, unless it's a really embarrassing answer. And then this can be your most embarrassing professional moment. So, so this is the psychologist that shows you the images and you have to say butterfly, yes. dagger. Yes. Okay. Did it's I a, sign up for this? This sounds really frightening. Uh, it's a butterfly. <laughs> it's a butterfly dagger rapid fire. Okay, um, go for it. All right. So, it. how many hours of sleep? Are, are, are these single? Okay, go, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Go. These will be quick, quick questions, multiple choice, uh, and just fire off whatever comes to mind. Yeah. How many hours of sleep do you typically get a night? Eight hours without fail. I absolutely love that. So, there's this new gene editing tool called CRISPR, where you can basically select genes that you want to replace. If you could replace one gene, if you could fix one thing about yourself genetically, what would it be? I would not be six foot five because I just got the sorest back. I have a constantly sore back because the world is designed for five foot seven people <laughs> and I have to bend down to do everything I want to do in my life. All right. Well, then I guess I don't want to be six five. Um, no, you don't. What is your favorite fiction and or nonfiction book? Oh, so at the moment I'm reading, I, I, I'm going to give you a um, nonfiction is Feral by George Monbiot. He's a sort of eco activist. And this is post conservation rewilding uh, countries. It's about rather than trying to conserve things like we imagine they used to be, how about just giving vast tracts of land over to nature and see what happens to it? And it is quite remarkable what happens. Um, in terms of, uh, fiction, not fiction. Can I, can I, can I give you if by Roger Kipling? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, daily music playlist theme. What kind of music do you listen to every day? <laughs> well, the tra so I cycle to work every day if I'm going into the office. In fact, I cycle to work if I'm going to stores. Um, and sadly music has been taken over by podcasts like this. So I'm listening to Guy Raz. I think I've listened to all of those. But um, yeah, talk radio and uh, well, talk radio in the UK is sort of possibly a bit more intellectual than what you, you're thinking of. So so podcasts and, and thoughtful programs about current affairs and um, business. Great. What is your wake up drink of choice and your wind down drink of choice? Huh. Oh, I got terrible, boring answers to this. So in the morning, um, yeah, these are, t oh God, I need to get some vodka and tequila in there. So vodka and tequila, <laughs> definitely. Um, but actually, boringly, um, I will drink green tea, uh, jasmine pearl, actually green tea in the morning with my breakfast. And uh, when I go to sleep, we have a yogi tea, which has got licorice and fennel in it. So that not very a, rock and roll, I'm afraid. That is an aggressive set of flavors to go to <laughs> yeah, sleep to. Exactly. <laughs> um, so this could be described as either your last meal, what would it be, or what's your favorite meal? Um, my favorite meal is changing a lot as I become much more aware about the impact of animal farming on the planet generally. Um, I'm a very passionate vegetable grower, uh, so the answer would be some extraordinary Middle Eastern vegetable dish. I don't even know what it is yet, but it would definitely have cucumbers and pomegranates and aubergines and potatoes and fennel and sort of crazy mix of flavors, um, but it would be vegetarian. <laughs> There is no way that doesn't become the best answer to this question over the arc of this podcast. <laughs> uh, do you have a particularly strong pet peeve? Yes. And, and it drives my wife insane that I, that this annoys me, but, and I, I don't know how to express it. Basically I'm 
constantly dissatisfied with the status quo. I don't know if that's a, a disease or a thing, and I call it DSQ, dissatisfied with the status quo. And she finds it so tiring because I question everything all the time, and it is relentless and boring and tiring. Um, uh, and that's my peeve, just being complacent. Why would you be complacent when there's stuff to do and exciting things to change? absolutely the best pet peeve I think you could ever ask for. Um, so you mentioned podcasts earlier. Do you have a yeah. favorite podcast of the moment? Yeah. So of the moment it's Guy Raz with his founder stories, how I built this. I'm not actually sure this is my ignorant American, um, how much you are able to shop from Amazon, but I know it's, um, it's an overwhelming percentage in my household. Do you have an estimate of how much you spend on Amazon in a month? Yeah, I'm on Prime and we have a delivery. We have three deliveries a week, let's say that. But they're all very low value items. Yeah. So if I had to add it up, it would be $200 a month. Very good. What TV show could you watch over and over and over again? Do you know, we don't even have a TV in our house. Um, I, I don't watch TV. Okay. That's terrible. I, I have watched Breaking. I, I can think of some I love, but none that I would watch again. Fair enough. What is your personal favorite article of clothing? <laughs> a wetsuit. Everything great. I do in a wetsuit, I love. That's great. Uh, cardio, do you love it or hate it? Love it. Would you rather fight off 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? No, it definitely, it would have to be the, it would have to be the small ones. I don't think they could kick me to death a hundred duck sized horses. Maybe they could, but it, I mean, swans can break your leg yeah. and they're not the size of a horse. No, that would terrify me. A horse sized duck. Scary. I'm already having nightmares about that. <laughs> this is one of my favorite questions I've ever been asked. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I know you talked a lot about, um, you love surfing you love skiing. You have one favorite single place that you love to travel to. Yes, we have um, taken the chance to build a house down in the south coast of England, um, which, believe it or not, doesn't rain all the time. Uh, it is sunny. It's beautiful. It's an, in an area of outstanding natural beauty called Chichester Harbour. And we sail there and paddleboard and kayak and fish. And it's, um, it's very special to us. It's a family. It's our family place for weekends. Lovely. And lastly, what is the best gift that you have ever received? Oh, I've, I've just got my answer straight away, but it sounds once again, sycophantic and, you know, love is the best gift you could ever receive in my opinion from anybody. Every other answer on every other episode is just going to pale in comparison to that. So I feel bad for whoever hasn't heard oh, this no, before. You're making me answer. sound like this sort of <laughs> No, it's not sycophantic. It's lovely. <laughs> Well, Simon, this okay. has been, um, I've taken <laughs> notes personally of things that, that I've already taken away. And it's what excites me so much about doing this podcast is these conversations, you and I have gotten to travel quite a bit together and share lessons of, of building Mizzen in Maine and Sweaty Betty and, um, have, have built a great friendship. And, and I, the reason we're doing this is so people can hear some of these great, great anecdotes and interactions and, um, the very human reality of what it takes to build a business. So you just could not have asked for a better first guest. This has been an awesome conversation and uh, look forward to getting some reaction. Where can people find you online? What's the best way if they want to ask you a question or reach out to you? So prior to this, I'm pleased to say that I've managed to keep my digital footprint to an absolute minimum, but I think you're going to trash my uh, 10 years of careful uh, curation. Um, the, best connect, the best contact for me is simon at sweatybetty.com. Okay. That's, uh, that's opening things up wide, wide open. Um, and then is that too open? Uh, I mean, we may want to cut that out. That's up to you. Um, and then, uh, in terms of finding your businesses, um, where should people find sweaty Betty online and in stores? Yes. Yeah, Sweatybetty.com. You'll find us on, uh, all the social media, uh, channels. And then, as I say, we have um, 12 stores across the U.S. from Aspen to Abbott Kinney in L.A. to um, Tribeca in Manhattan. And then a whole load in the U.K., pretty much all, all of the 
uh, all of the main towns and cities in the UK. That's great. Well, thank you so much for spending some time together today. It was a fun conversation and uh, look forward to seeing you again here in a couple of weeks. Uh, Kevin, it was a great honor to be invited. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you do know that your shirts have changed my life. I told you already that I did Soul Cycle at 7 a.m. and I had an 8.15 lunch with some important people. And normally I would sit through that, sorry, breakfast. I would sit through that breakfast soaking wet in a cotton shirt. And I put on my first ever mizzen and main and I was cool as a cucumber. So thank you very much as well. I love it. And my creative director and I were here sitting wondering what British people are eating for lunch at 8.15, but I'm glad it was breakfast. <laughs> you know, there's, there's cultural differences. Well, listen, Simon, this was great. Um, thank you so much for a, a wonderful first session and I uh, hope everybody out there listening to this enjoyed it and go check out Sweaty Betty for all of the ladies in your life. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Kevin S. Lavelle, and you can also go to founders15.com for show notes and other episodes. Thank you. Thank you.